We are beginning a series in the book of Genesis, and I was asked to introduce that topic, which I'm happy to do. I want to talk about the importance of Genesis, its history, and why it is that we need to be able to defend the history in Genesis. It really does matter, because if you're like me, you're concerned about the problems that we have in the world today, and we do have some problems in the world today. Would you agree with that? Yeah. Yeah. And I want to show you that there's a connection between those problems and the increasing rejection of Genesis in favor of something like evolution. And so that's what we're going to look at uh, this morning. So Genesis, it is that first book of the Bible in the sense that it records the first things that happened. We think Job is probably written before Genesis, but Genesis is the first book of the Torah, the, the books of the law. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And these were written uh, by Moses. Probably during the Exodus, we think that's about when they were written, and that gives you an approximate time scale there. Jesus confirms that Moses gave us the Torah, the law, and you can see that in Luke 24, 44. So those first five books of the Bible were indeed written by Moses. There was, there was an older um, hypothesis decades ago called the Documentary Hypothesis or the JEDP Hypothesis that proposed that Moses didn't really write Genesis, that it was written by four different authors and then and compiled much later in history, and that was because they thought that writing hadn't been invented at that point, but since then they found that, yes, it has been invented, and so that's, that's long discredited. Moses did write Genesis. Genesis is that foundational book, and it is the easiest book of the Bible to interpret. It really is, because all the other books of the Bible presuppose that you've read what comes before. With Genesis, there is nothing before, so it, you come at it with a blank slate, and there's nothing, there's no previous history to in the beginning. That makes it the easiest book of the Bible to interpret. It's straightforward. Revelation's the hardest because you have to really understand the Old Testament imagery to, to interpret Revelation properly. Genesis covers over 2,000 years of earth history, more than all the other books of the Bible combined. It really is foundational. And we'll see that it's foundational to Christian doctrines because it lays the 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 origins of something determine its purpose later on. Now, the interesting thing about Genesis, of course, is that it records information, it records events that happened long before the birth of its author, Moses. And so how did, how did Moses do that? And of course, one possibility is simply that God gave him that information. That's not a problem. That's certainly a possibility. It's also possible that Moses used previous written material which he then compiled under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit into what we have in Genesis today. And that's, that's my preference. I think that's probably correct. And it's suggested in passages like Genesis 5.1, which says this is the book of the generations of Adam. There's a book of Adam. That's interesting. And apparently Moses used that book and used that information guided by the Holy Spirit to compile uh, Genesis. And he would still be considered the author of Genesis under those circumstances. The Genesis 5.1, that's the way it looks in Hebrew. The word for generations there is toledoth, and it basically means birthings, and that's why it's sometimes translated as generations. But it's, it's more than that. It's what follows from, what followed from Adam. Well, in this case, his uh, offspring. But it can mean more than that. It can mean the account of, uh, but birthings, literally. And there are 11 of these toledoths in Genesis. One of them is a repeat, so there's basically 10. And that's probably the pattern I think that we're going to follow as we explore Genesis in the coming weeks. So th these are the 
uh, Toledoths that you'll find there, the birthings. And almost all of them have a name associated with them, the generations of Adam, the birthings, the Toledoth of Adam, the Toledoth of Noah, of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, of Shem specifically, and so on. Except the first one, and it's, it, the NAS translates it as account in Genesis 2-4. This is the account, and that's perfectly good. But it's the same word, it's Toledoth. These are the birthings of the heaven and the earth, which is interesting. And so if people uh, who saw these events, Adam, Noah, and Shem, if they're the authors of various sections, the author of the first chapter up to verse 4 apparently is God himself. He's the only one who could have witnessed the early days of creation. Adam could have experienced some of the events of day 6 because he's created on day 6. But it's possible that God himself wrote that first chapter, maybe in stone, like the Ten Commandments. We don't really know. But we know that it's inspired by God because Jesus affirmed Genesis and quoted from Genesis 1 and 2, in fact. Christian doctrines have their foundation in Genesis, and really the first 11 chapters of Genesis. That's how foundational it is. If you consider the fact that we have laws, I mean, that's, that's an important principle. We, we understand that we're to obey God. He's given us certain commandments, and we're to obey them. If we disobey, there are consequences. Where, do we, where does that idea come from? It comes from Genesis. God is the creator. As such, he has the right to make the rules. And we learn about that in Genesis, that God is the creator. It's, it's the way it starts. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. All that's in them is his, is his work. And therefore, God, as the creator, he's the owner of everything, and he has the right to set rules. We're the creation. And so that, cre- that creation, um, that creator-creation distinction is found right there in Genesis. That's why God, that's why we answer to God. He answers to no one. We learn that there are penalties for disobedience. We learn that in Genesis. What is that penalty for disobedience? Death. Because when you sin against God, he's the king. You're committing high treason. That's a capital offense. And and it's not just any king. It's the king of kings and lord of lords, an infinitely holy God that deserves an infinite death. And so that's where we get the idea of death being the penalty for sin. And, And God was explicit when he told Adam what would happen if he sinned that dying you will die. The way it's written in Hebrew is interesting. It indicates that you will be mortal. As soon as he ate from that fruit, you would be mortal. Your death would be, your death would be certain. He'd be mortal in that very moment. And he was. Marriage. Where do we get this silly idea that marriage is one man and one woman united by God for life? Well, that goes back to Genesis. God created Adam and Eve. God made two genders. Two. Not the 367 that you hear about in our culture today. Two. See, you show me someone who doesn't believe that there's male and female, I'll show you someone who rejects Genesis. Because as soon as you accept the history in Genesis, it's male and female, that's, and that's marriage. God defines marriage because he created it, not the Supreme Court. God defines marriage. What people say about marriage is utterly irrelevant. Standards, standards of behavior, standards of clothing. I noticed you're all wearing clothes today. I appreciate that. I'm sure you do too. Where do we learn about the origin of clothing? It's in Genesis, Genesis 3. Yeah, it wasn't originally that way, but because of our shame of sin, uh, God provided skins of clothing. I think that's a beautiful picture of the gospel, right? Because uh, Adam and Eve, they tried to make their own clothing and it was insufficient. God provided clothes. He killed an animal or animals to provide skin. Those would be animal skins that he provided for Adam and Eve. A picture of the gospel. Really beautiful. Meaning of life. Why is it that human life has value? And it's because we're made in the image of God. Male and female, we're made in the image of God. 
And therefore, I can't just go out and shoot somebody that really annoys me because that person's made in the image of God and therefore deserves dignity and respect. But there's another option today because we, we now have a lot of people that believe in evolution. Evolution denies the history recorded in Genesis because in the evolutionary view, we're just sort of rearranged pond scum, right? Over millions of years, uh, something like bacteria eventually diversified into everything else. And so you're related to broccoli in the evolutionary view. Now, I don't believe that, but evolutionists do. They think that broccoli is your distant cousin. And if that's the case, why would you have laws? Because ultimately, laws are designed to protect the weak from the strong. If you think about it, every law has that built into it. And yet evolution is supposed to proceed by the strong dominating over the weak and eliminating them. Evolution is is anti-law by its nature, and laws are anti-evolutionary by their very nature. It's not surprising that we should see an increase in lawlessness as people reject the history recorded in Genesis. There's certainly no basis for any kind of objective universal law over everybody. It's just what you can get away with. Or why not do what you want with sex, for that matter? If we're just animals, animals do what they want, why shouldn't we? It's not surprising that we're seeing a tremendous increase in sexual impurity in our nation. So it's amazing. Just in the last few years, it seems like it's picked up. Abortion. Well, why not? I mean, if we're just animals, right? I mean, too many cats, you euthanize them. Too many babies, euthanize them. You say, well, that's terrible. Well, that's because you know that human beings are made in the image of God. Cats are not. Cats are very not. (laughs) All those doctrines based in Genesis, and we're now seeing a society that increasingly rejects Genesis as history. Oh, Jesus understood this. In his earthly ministry, he often quoted from Genesis as the foundation for other doctrines. In Matthew 19, when the religious leaders asked Jesus about divorce to explain marriage, Jesus went back and quoted Genesis 1 and 2 as the foundation for marriage. For this reason, the man shall leave his father and mother and join to his wife, and they shall be one flesh. So Jesus understood that. But we're now in a culture that's rejecting Genesis increasingly. And why should you accept that marriage is one man and one woman? Right? I mean, if Adam and Eve, if that's just a fairy tale, if that didn't really happen, then that means marriage doesn't have a basis in history. It's just a cultural trend. And the culture changes, so why shouldn't the definition of marriage change? And that's not a hypothetical that I'm giving you. That's the argument the secular humanists make. It is. Or the law, the, the objective moral code that we get from Scripture. If, if God really isn't the creator, if Genesis isn't true, then why would we accept those laws? All of these doctrines that we hold to, we're seeing them erode because their foundation in Genesis is eroding in the minds of people. And this began really in the, it began before Darwin even, in the 1700s when people started doubting Genesis. And then that paved the way for Darwin in 1859, his origin of species and so on. And the church for the most part, didn't stand up and defend Genesis. And now we, we, we're seeing the results of that. We're reaping the fruit of our unwillingness to defend the Bible from the very first verse. It's harder now. It's harder now. But a lot of people think, well, I don't have time to worry about origins, Dr. Lyle, because you know marriage is under attack. Well, there's a connection, right? There are these bad, there's these wicked laws. Yeah, that's what you'd expect once you reject the Bible begin, beginning at the very first verse. But we get intimidated because there are some brilliant people who believe in evolution, and I don't deny that. There's some brilliant people who believe in creation, but in any case, uh, the majority of scientists believe in evolution, 
And so we get intimidated and we think we need to, we need to, it's got to be true, right? Because all those scientists can't be wrong. And so uh, maybe we're reading Genesis wrong. And a lot of Christians get intimidated and think that they got to fit evolution into the Bible somehow. If you're going to do that, though, you can't take Genesis as literal history. Because according to Genesis, God made organisms after their kinds. They didn't, they didn't diversify over millions of years. The, the order of creation is different, too, in terms of the, the evolution of life versus the way the Bible describes its creation. And so we get intimidated and we think that Genesis, therefore, can't be real history. And you'll find many professing Christians who will deny the history of Genesis. They'll say, well, it's poetic, it's not meant to be taken literally, or it's like a parable, it's got spiritual value, but it's not literal history. But Genesis isn't written as parable or as poetry, it's written as history. You know those verses that you love to read before you go to bed, and so-and-so begets so-and-so, and they beget so-and-so. <laughs> those genealogies like you find in Genesis 5, well, those verses are there for a reason. They're there to show us these are real people who lived. It tells us their names, the names of at least one of their children, all kinds of incredibly boring information, like how long, how old they were when they begat that child and how long they lived afterward, and they added up and you get the total age, just the Hebrews could add. They were not common core educated, so they still knew how to do arithmetic. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, that's the way you'd record history. And this happened, and that happened, lots of use of the Hebrew Vav consecutive. There's no doubt that it's historical. It's not poetic. Hebrew poetry is easy to recognize. It's different from English. We tend to focus on rhyme and meter, but in Hebrew, they focused on parallelism. That was the distinguishing feature of Hebrew poetry is parallelism, where you would say something, and then you'd say something that kind of goes along with it. You have synonymous parallelism, where you'll say something, and you'll say the same thing in different words. Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. See how it really says the same thing using different words, and it's beautiful. And I think it's wonderful that the Lord used the Hebrew language to record his Old Testament, because uh, if it was like English, where rhyme and meter, poetry is based on rhyme and meter, that would not survive translation. Parallelism does. So I think that's wonderful. The beauty is not lost, even in English. Genesis isn't written that way. You won't find parallelism in Genesis. It's not there. People have tried to argue that. It's not there. This would be a terrible poem. Right? <laughs> it's not written that way. Nor is it a parable. Jesus often used parables in his earthly uh, teaching ministry. He was very good at that. A parable is where you take a spiritual principle and explain it using something physical that we're familiar with. That's not what you're, you're seeing here. Parables usually don't have specific names at all. It's usually there was a certain man or there was a king. You wouldn't bog down a parable with all kinds of irrelevant information about genealogies and things like that. No, this is history. It's the way that the Hebrews recorded their history. And by the way, those genealogies lead up to Christ. And you can read about those in Matthew and in Luke. But see, there are Christians, though, who say, but I don't think Adam's a real person. I believe in Jesus, but I don't think Adam's... Adam's just a metaphor. But Jesus is descended from Adam. How can a real person be descended from a fictional one? That's what I want to know. That's not going to work. It's theologically important that Jesus Christ is descended from a real Adam, and so are we all, because that makes Jesus Christ our blood relative. He's your cousin. Broccoli is not your cousin. Jesus is. <laughs> and you got the long end of the stick on that one, believe me. So why is that important? Because according to biblical law, only a relative can save you. The concept of the kinsman, redeemer, right? It has to be a relative to take your place on the cross. We're all of one blood, meaning Christ's blood counts for us because we're all related. 
you see. That's why the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sins. The Bible says that in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4. Why can't they take away sins? Because we're not related to, we're not related to the animals. That's why they can't pay for our sins. Right? Now, they were used symbolically in the Old Testament to point forward to Christ, but no one was ever saved by animal sacrifice. I hope you understand that. Uh, it just, it just uh, gave the Jews a picture of what Christ would do. Their faith was in God, ultimately. And that's how they were saved. But, they, but the blood of bulls and goats can't pay for sins because they're not our relatives. Unless, of course, evolution's true, in which case that doctrine's gone. You see how the gospel message goes back to the literal history recorded in Genesis? It's in Genesis we learn that death's the penalty for sin. It's in Genesis that we're first promised a redeemer. When, God, when Adam and Eve sinned and, and God confronted them, he promised that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, indicating one of her descendants would destroy Satan's power. That was the promise of the gospel. Putting it another way, which Adam is non-essential to the gospel? Is it the first Adam that made it necessary for us to be saved? Or is it Jesus Christ, the last Adam, who saved us? You see, without the first Adam, there's no need for the last Adam. And that's why a lot of people, when they're out and they're doing evangelism, that's great. Trust in Jesus. The world will respond, why? I'm basically a good person. Now, there's someone who doesn't understand Genesis. Because if you understand Genesis, how many sins did it take to ruin the world? One. Because God's perfectly holy. And one sin blew it. And that's why we can't enter the new heavens and the new earth. They're going to remain perfect forever, which means not one sin can come into them. And that's a problem because we're sinners. We need someone to pay for our sins and change our nature to be righteous. And that's something only Christ can do. The Bible really is the history book of the universe. It does have other types of literature, but it's mainly a history book recording the important events that have happened in terms of our relationship with God and giving God's story of redemption, God redeeming a people to himself. And I find a lot of people like the morality the Bible teaches, but they want to reject the history. Oh, even atheists like some of the morality the Bible teaches. Thou shalt not murder. They like that one. They don't want to be murdered, right? Thou shalt not steal. Well, yeah, that's good. They don't want their wallet stolen. But the morality comes out of the history. Why is it wrong to murder? Because human beings are made in God's image, you see. It, you, you can't separate the two. Jesus put it this way. He was speaking to Nicodemus. He said, if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? It's a pretty good question, isn't it? Because the Bible deals with both earthly matters and heavenly or spiritual matters. Earthly matters like the days of creation, something that happened in history, the flood that happened at the time of Noah, and heavenly matters like salvation. But you see, if you say, yes, but I'm not sure that the details in Genesis are accurate because most scientists say that's not possible anyway. Well, if God didn't get the details right in Genesis, how can you trust that he got the details right on how to inherit eternal life? Does God know how to communicate or doesn't he? Now, I think any God who can speak the universe into existence can probably write a book, <laughs> right? Of the two, that's the easier task. I've written a few books, but I've never spoken a universe into existence. God does know how to communicate. We just don't like what he has to say. That's the problem. So you get God's infallible word and man's fallible word. And when people try to make those two agree, maybe to be academically respectable, right? It's not cool to be a creationist. But for whatever reason, the one you modify is the one you don't really have your faith in. 
because you'd need to have a greater standard to tell you how to modify it. So that's telling. It really is. We have more confidence, sadly, in man's ability to understand the universe than in God's ability to communicate. That's sad. And this is not new. The Pharisees and Sadducees were masterful at reinterpreting God's word to match their traditions. We're no different today. The millions of years of evolution, that's a modern tradition. And, and we've learned how to modify our reading of Scripture to accommodate that. Jesus did not tolerate that kind of nonsense. He would respond with, it is written, have you not read? You do understand that when Jesus is speaking to the, the scribes and Pharisees and he says, have you not read? He's being sarcastic. Of course they'd read it. They hadn't applied it. We don't think of our Lord using sarcasm, but sometimes he did, and he did it very well. You can think of the culture war that's going on today a bit like these two cities. You've got the city of Christianity, God's city, right? Based on creation. God's word is true from the beginning. And all those Christian doctrines being based on creation. The fact that God is creator and he has the right to make the rules. The other competing religion today, the big one in the United States, is secular humanism. Now there are other false religions in this nation to be sure. But the one that's really made huge inroads in the last few years is secular humanism. And it is based on evolution. It's based on the idea that human beings are the greatest things to have evolved from this line, and we answer to no one, and therefore we can make up our own rules. And so certain things will, will stem from that way of thinking. And I'm not suggesting that, that evolution is the cause of all the social ills. Sin is the cause of social ills. But I am suggesting that evolution gives people a way to try and justify those sins in their minds. Because abortion did exist before evolution was around, at least Darwinian evolution, but it certainly has skyrocketed since. Because if human beings are just animals, there is no basis for dignity and respect in human beings. There is no basis for cherishing an infant. But if infants are made in God's image, which they are, then that's what gives them their dignity, you see. So we're, how are we fighting this war? Not as effectively as we could be. We're shooting at those billboards, and we should do that. We should fight against racism and abortion and so on. But if we're not dealing with the root of the problem, we're just trying to alleviate symptoms, that's not a good strategy, if that's all we're doing. Meanwhile, the secular humanists are smart. They're aiming at our foundation. They're saying, the Bible's stupid because we know from science that the first chapter's wrong. In the beginning, God, that's silly. We know in the beginning, hydrogen gas, which I think is rather silly. But that's, that's what they claim, right? In the beginning, Big Bang. Yeah. In any case, and we're helping them. We're shooting our own foundation because there are many Christians. I don't doubt their salvation, but they say it doesn't matter what you believe about Genesis. Just trust in Jesus. Well, we should trust in Jesus, but Jesus did believe in Genesis and quoted from it. So what's the solution then? I do think we, should, we need to keep zapping billboards. We do, we do need to fight against racism, abortion, and so on. But we need to do more than that. We need to defend ourselves against the arguments waged by the evolutionists, the secular humanists. We need to point out that's not a good argument. Learn to spot logical fallacies and things like that. We need to do some damage ourselves and point out that evolution is a scientifically bankrupt conjecture about the past. That's all it is. It doesn't have good scientific support. Now, I'm a scientist, so I kind of specialize in the scientific aspects of that. But all of us can, can stand on God's word and say, well, I don't know all the scientific details, but I know what God has said, and he was there. You weren't. 
And then we need to repair the damage that's been done and show people you can trust in creation. You can trust in God's word from the beginning. And then I like how this is illustrated because we're not shooting at those people. We're shooting at that city which represents a worldview that's contrary to God's word and therefore false and therefore will be destroyed. We were hoping the people will will abandon that sinking city and swim over and join us on the city of God. We want people to be saved. That's why I do what I do. I want people to be saved. It's not an academic game for me. I don't like academic games. There's nothing wrong with that, but, um, but that's not why I'm in this. I want people to be saved. And by the way, that city that you see on the left there, the secular humanism, it is going down. I've read the end of the book. God wins. He'd have to, right? Uh, secular humanists are fighting against the very God that holds the atoms of their body together. They're not going to win that. It's just a question of how many victims it takes, and we want those to be as few as possible. What about the time scale of creation? There's some controversy there, although there shouldn't be. The Bible says God created in six days. tells us what he did on each of those days of creation. Human beings are made on day six. And from those genealogies you love to read before you go to bed, so-and-so begets so-and-so, you add up the ages, and you find it's about 4,000 years between creation, between Adam and Christ, Christ's earthly ministry, which was about 2,000 years ago. So something like 6,000 years ago that God created the heaven, the earth, and all that's in them. And that is not a popular view today. It's not. Because we're taught, if you went through a public school system, you were taught that the earth's billions of years old, 4.5 billion years old. The universe is supposedly 13.8 billion years old. That number changes a little bit every few years when we find that the old number was wrong, but we're supposed to trust the new one. Anyway, we get intimidated because you'll find it in the textbooks, right? There, I mean, the, there's the fossils and there's the label, millions of years. Got to be true. It's in a textbook. And I confirmed it on the internet, so it's definitely true, right? <laughs> Facebook fact checkers confirmed it. So that, I mean, that's the highest standard right there. <laughs> well, we get intimidated. And a lot of people think, again, that they need to add the millions of years uh, into the Bible. But where are you going to do it? Where are you going to fit the millions of years? You can't do it in between Adam and Christ because that would wipe out those genealogies, right? You can't say, and so-and-so begets so-and-so, and then a million years later they beget so No, that doesn't work. That doesn't work. There's just not that many generations between Adam and Christ. It's certainly not millions of years worth. So people try to put the millions of years into the creation week because that's the only place they can think to do it. So where are you going to put the millions of years in the creation week? Some people say, well, maybe the millions of years happened before the beginning. And that's pretty easy to refute because if the millions of years happened before the beginning, then the beginning wouldn't be the beginning. It would be the much later. And that's not what the Bible says. Or some people say, well, maybe there's a gap between Genesis verse 1 and verse 2. The so-called gap theory, a few different forms of it, the ruin and reconstruction and so on. We'll come back to that. I just want to point out there's no evidence for that in the Bible at all. Uh, but one of the most common is to say that maybe the days weren't really days. Maybe they were vast ages, hundreds of millions of years each. And so God really made in six ages. And then, of course, I'm inclined to ask, then why did he say six days? Because he does say six days. Uh, some people say, well, there is no Hebrew word for a long period of time, which isn't true. But I think that's such a weird objection. It's like, well, well God forgot to make a word for a long period of time. And so he just used day and hoped that we'd figure it out. And there are, there are several Hebrew words that indicate a long period of time, like olam, which means a long period of time. So, <laughs> there are others too. So, now people will try and say, oh, but the Bible says that one day is what the Lord is a thousand years. So see, there you go. There could have been long periods of time. 
of course, that's pulling out of context, the, the uh, context here, that one day is with the Lord is a thousand years. And by the way, they only quote the first part of the verse. One day is with the Lord is a thousand years. What does the rest of the verse say? And a thousand years is one day. They only want to go halfway around the circle and then get off. You know, you can't do that. Follow it. You need to follow it around. Uh, it's, it's not, when you read it in context, it has nothing to do with the creation week. It's not what it's referring to. It's explaining God's patience in delaying judgment because there's still people he wants to save. That's the context of the passage. It's explaining that God is beyond time, which is how a day can be like a thousand years and a thousand years as a day. It's not giving you permission to change the word day everywhere you see it in Scripture to a thousand years, which, by the way, would make the earth 12,000 years old instead of 6,000. So it doesn't really help. The Hebrew word for day is yom. It's used over 2,000 times in the Old Testament of the Bible in singular and plural form. Plural form is yamim. And why do people only question the days in Genesis? Isn't that true? For some reason, other days in Scripture, we don't have any difficulty understanding what, they're, what they mean. Like, how long was Jonah really in the belly of the great fish? I mean, was it, oh, I think those are ordinary days. Somebody says, oh, I think they were 1,000 years. Days like 1,000 years. He was in there 3,000 years, right? For some, for some reason, we don't have a problem with that. Or how long did Joshua really take to march around the walls of Jericho? Were those ordinary days? Oh, no, I think they were millions of years. He was going around there a long time. Look at the rut he's dug out there. Now, for some reason, we don't seem to be confused about these other days in Scripture. Now, people will point out that the Hebrew word for day, yom, can mean a long period of time when used poetically, usually with a prepositional phrase like the day of the Lord. Yeah, that doesn't have to be 24 hours. That can be a longer period. It doesn't mean millions of years, but, um, but the main meaning of, of yom is day. That's its literal meaning. It's just like any word, it can be used non-literally. Any word can be used non-literally. We understand that. Our English word for day can be used non-literally to indicate a longer period of time, like back in my father's day. Yeah, that would be a longer period of time. It wouldn't be millions of years, but it would be longer than 24 hours. So I get that. So back in my father's day, it took three days to drive across Texas during the day. Now you got the word day used three times, and I'll bet you didn't have any trouble understanding it because you used context, right? And, and that's true of any word. I mean, if you think about it, most words have more than one meaning. Pick, pick any word, look it up in a dictionary. You can have definition one, definition two, three, sometimes three A, three B, three C, right? If Man, if every word has multiple definitions, how do we even communicate? Have you ever thought about that? How do we do it? The answer is context. In a well-constructed sentence, only one meaning for each word works. Now, sometimes people will come up with an ambiguous sentence where two meanings are equally likely, and those are usually funny. Like if I said, um, the student center is giving away free guitars, no strings attached. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Because it has multiple meanings, and it's funny. It's an impibly fallacy. <laughs> but in, in most sentences, they're well-constructed. And of course, God's going to have well-constructed sentences. He's not going to have... Um, he's not the author of confusion, the Bible says. So back in my father's day, that would be the poetic longer period of time. It wouldn't be millions of years, even there. But it would be longer than 24 hours. We get that. It just means time in a generic sense. It took three days. Well, no, those, are, those would be three earth rotations, right? Because it's got a number with it. So, of course, that's three days to drive across Texas during the day. That would be the light portion of an ordinary day. Very clear. And so two of those are literal, and then one is, is uh, figurative. It's the same with the Hebrew word for day. And let's just take a look outside of Genesis 1, where we all agree what it means. No disagreement about how long Jonah was in the belly of the great fish. We get that. We find that, for example, when the word day, yom, is used with a number, like the first day, the second day, the third day, the fourth day, 
it's always translated as day and very clearly means an ordinary day. And that happens over 400 times outside of Genesis. And we all agree that's an ordinary day. If I said on the third day you went up to such and such a city, you'd understand I'm talking about an ordinary uh, day, earth rotation. We get that. If evening and morning are together, even if the word day isn't there, what's an evening plus a morning? It's a day, isn't it? Those are the boundaries of a day. So you add it up, you get a day. And that happens 38 times outside of Genesis 1, and we agree those are ordinary days. If evening is associated with day, if I said there was evening that day, you'd know I'm talking about an ordinary day. Or if I said there was morning that day, you'd know I'm talking about an ordinary day. Either one, evening with day or morning with day, happens 23 times each, and we all agree those are ordinary days. When day is contrasted with night, if I said there was day, then there was night, you'd know I'm talking about an ordinary day. So these are contextual clues that, that tell you that we're dealing with an ordinary day and not the poetic, you know, day of the Lord type of thing, okay? So you got it? Day with a number, evening and morning together, evening with day or morning with day, or day contrasted with night. So those are some of the contextual clues. So let's apply these to Genesis 1 and see if we can figure out what God meant when he said he created in six days. Genesis 1 verse 5, and God called the light day. Oh, there's another one. He's defining it for you. Days when it's light out. That's an ordinary day. And the darkness he called night. You got night associated with day. That would make it an ordinary day. You got evening associated with day. That would make it an ordinary day. You got morning associated with day. That would make it an ordinary day. You've got evening and morning together, which constitutes an ordinary day. And you got a number with it. God used about every contextual indicator he could possibly have used to indicate that first day is an ordinary day. That's amazing. There's no doubt about that. What about the other days of creation? Any clues there? Let's have a look. Evening, morning, number, day. 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 That's pretty clear, isn't it? It's almost as if God's saying, see, they're ordinary days, and in case you still don't get it, they're ordinary days, and in case you're a little thick, they're ordinary days, and in case you're really intellectually challenged, they're ordinary days. Okay? Now people say, oh, I mean, how could he have been clearer, really? People say, well, he could have said 24-hour days. See, see, even there, though, people would just say, what's an hour, though? Right? I mean, if you determine not to believe the text, you're not going to believe the text. And by the way, hours hadn't been invented yet. They were invented by the Egyptians later, the idea of dividing the day into 12 and the night into 12 hours and so on. So they didn't exist at that time. People say, oh, but the sun wasn't made until the fourth day. Take an astronomy class, because that's not what determines the length of the day. It's the rotation of the earth that determines the length of the day. As long as you have a light source and a rotating planet, you're going to have day and night. Did we have a light source on the first day? Genesis 1, verse 3, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. Yes, we had light. We had light, and God divided the light from the darkness. So we had evening and morning on that first day. There it is. And then God replaced that temporary light with the sun on day four. The Bible doesn't say why, but it, maybe it's so the Hebrews would be less inclined to worship the sun. Most pagan cultures worship the sun as the ultimate source of life, so maybe God displaces it a few days, his way of saying, I'm the ultimate source of life. The sun is just an object God created to sustain the life that he had created. He, doesn't even call, he didn't even call it the sun in Genesis, just the greater light, right? So he, he gives something a name, it might be a deity. So no, it's just an object that God created. You know, all the other units of time have a basis in astronomy, except the seven-day week. That's the exception. The other units of time, a day, rotation of Earth, right? A month, the amount of time it takes the moon to go through its phases. That's where we get the word month. It is a month. A year is the amount of time it takes the Earth to go around the sun. But where do we get the idea of seven days in a week? Not from astronomy, from history. 
That's how long God chose to take to create and rest. And he did it that way as a pattern for us. You know Exodus chapter 20, that's the Ten Commandments, right? Verse 8, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. In six days you do all your labor, the seventh is the Lord's. Verse 11 is the explanation for why. Why do we have a seven-day week? Because that's what God did. So, if God had really created in over millions of years, the rest of the million years, you would have an awfully long work week. You would never make it to the weekend, literally. And by the way, the word there for days is in the plural form, yamim, which is always literal. Yamim never means a long period of time. So there's no doubt that God created in six days. Back in Martin Luther's time, there were some people who were trying to squeeze the days of creation into one day. That was actually fairly popular in the Middle Ages to say that God really created everything in one day or in an instant even. And I like how Martin Luther responds to this. It's a good lesson for all of us. He says, how long did the work of creation take? When Moses writes that God created heaven and earth and whatever is in them in six days, then let this period continue to have been six days and do not venture to devise any comment according to which six days were one day. I love this last part. He says, but if you cannot understand how this could have been done in six days, then grant the Holy Spirit the honor of being more learned than you are. (laughs) Maybe my favorite Luther quote, and he had some good ones. Well, there's the gap theory then for folks who say, yeah, there's no doubt the days are days. I mean, you can't get around that. But maybe we can get millions of years in between verse 1 and verse 2. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and then millions of years of stuff happened. Maybe, maybe Satan was given charge over that original earth, and maybe he rebelled against God, and God flooded that earth. And then and in verse 2, they'd like to translate it, the earth became without form and void. Uh, you really can't translate it that way, though. The Hebrew word there, haitah, just means was. But in any case, it turns out you can't put a gap of time in between verse 1 and verse 2 based on Hebrew uh, grammar. Uh, This is Genesis 1 in Hebrew. Now, Hebrew reads right to left, opposite of English. And uh, verse 2 uses a grammatical construction called a vav disjunctive. That's where you have the word and. You you notice how a lot of times the sentences start with and, right? And this happened and so on. But if you have and followed by a non-verb in the original Hebrew word order, and the earth. Earth is not a verb, it is a noun, right? If you remember your elementary school grammar. So when you have that in Hebrew, that indicates that is a comment or clarification of what was previously stated. It's kind of like what we use parentheses for in English. Verse 2 is a parenthetical comment on verse 1. And so my point is you can't put a gap of time between verse 1 and verse 2 because verse 2 doesn't follow in time. Verse 2 is clarifying, explaining verse 1. If you just had verse 1, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, you might think, oh, he made it like it is today, full of people and land separated from oceans and universe full of stars. Verse 2 is clarifying, no. When God first made the earth, it wasn't like it is today. It was without form and empty. It didn't have all the life forms that we have today. Because then the rest of Genesis is God forming and filling what he initially created as unformed and unfilled. Okay? So you can't put a gap of time between verse 1 and verse 2 because of grammar. Now the rest of Genesis is different. It's vav consecutive. That's and followed by a verb in the Hebrew word order. And said God and, and so on. Um, and that does follow in time, but there's no evidence of any gaps at all. And I think Exodus 20.11 pretty well cinches it. In six days, the Lord made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all that's in them. What about the science? Because people get intimidated because they think, well, you know, radiometric dating and things like that, they can prove that the world's billions of years old. No, they can't. They can't. And there's a lot of indications that the world is not nearly as old as the secularists believe. I'll just, just to whet your appetite here a little bit, Um, A lot of people think carbon dating gives the millions of years. That's not the case. There are other methods secularists use, but carbon dating is our friend, and it tends to give answers that are pretty close to the biblical time scale. 
Now, it's not perfect either, but uh, it's based on the decay of C14. C14 is a variety of carbon. Most carbon is C12. Uh, C14 has two extra neutrons, and that makes it unstable. It will disintegrate. It will turn into nitrogen. You don't have to do anything to it. Just all by itself, it'll just turn into nitrogen and emit energy when it does that. And it does so with a half-life of 5,700 years. That's how long it takes for half of C14 to decay into nitrogen. And so the bottom line is C14 does not last million, millions of years. It won't even last one million years. But we find it in everything that has carbon in it. We find it in coal beds that are supposed to be 100 million years old. They got C14 in them. They used to use chunks of coal to calibrate the machines on the assumption that there would be no C14 left after 100 million years. They don't do that anymore because all chunks of coal have C14 in them. We found them in diamonds, diamonds that secularists believe to be one to two billion years old. Now, they can't be nearly that old because C14 doesn't even last one million years. And we found C14 in those diamonds. And the secularists say, well, somehow new C14 got in there. It's a diamond. It's the hardest substance. How are you going to do that? Anyway, a lot of stuff like that. And I have other presentations I deal on that. But what I want to address now is, does it matter? Because historically what happened is the seculars came along in the, especially in the 1700s, and started arguing that the Bible is not true. And they were, they were motivated. I mean, I, I can show you quotes of folks with, like James Hutton and Charles Lyell saying things like, they wanted to divorce the science of geology from Moses, in the, meaning Genesis. Because up until the 1700s, people had been using science. It was, most scientists were Christians, and they were used to using the Bible to guide their research. And they were very successful. How about that? You start with the Bible, you get the right answer. And, but uh, some of the secularists didn't like that, and so they started arguing that the rock layers were much older than the Bible indicates. They said there was no worldwide flood, but these rock layers were laid down gradually over hundreds of millions of years. And a lot of the theologians, not all of them, but a lot of them compromised. And said, so, well, you know what? That, that, that's not a salvation issue. And I agree in the sense that nobody's saying you have to believe in six days to be saved. I've never, I don't know anyone that believes that. We're saved by God's grace, received through faith in Christ. And God doesn't require us to have perfect theology. Praise God. But at the same time, out of gratitude for our salvation, we ought to get our theology as right as possible, don't you think? So it's not a salvation issue. Gravity is not a salvation issue. You cannot believe in gravity. You'll still go to heaven. You'll probably beat me there. <laughs> but it's an important issue. And it's the same with the time scale. It's important for a couple of reasons. First of all, it's important because it is what the Bible teaches. And I realize most people can't read the Bible in the original languages. But you know what? When all the major translations say the same thing, and they all say six days, uh, that tells you that's been properly translated. Or you can, you know, you can get Bible software and go back and look at the look at the words. That doesn't that's not going to make you an expert in Hebrew, but it will confirm that yes, it's been correctly translated. There's no doubt. Six days. That's what the Bible says. I think it's interesting too. The section of the Bible where it says, "In six days, the Lord made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all that's in them." That was written by God's own finger in stone. I mean, all, all Scripture is inspired by God, but I think the, the section that, it's interesting, the section that people most want to compromise is the section God didn't even use a human agent. He wrote it himself with his finger in stone. Interesting. You see, the same Bible that teaches that God created in six days also teaches the virgin birth of Christ, that Jesus turned water into wine. He walked on water, calmed the storm, raised the dead, raised himself from the dead. Same Bible teaches all that, right? But a lot of people say, yes, but 
you know, the scientists say six days of creation, that's not possible. So I, I think we need to reinterpret that section of scripture. Most scientists would say virgin birth's not possible. Turning water into wine's not possible. Resurrection from the dead's not possible. You going to reinterpret those sections? Because Jesus is resurrection, that is a salvation issue. If Christ is not raised, you're still in your sins. Your faith is in vain. The Bible itself says that. Now, some people would say, oh, but wait a minute, that's not fair because the, that list on the right there, those are miracles. So they're not constrained by science. I agree. But wasn't the creation of the universe a miracle? If not, I'd like to see you do it. There's another reason why you don't want to add the millions of years, and it's something that a lot of people have not thought about, but it has to do with the nature of death. Because if you think about it, these fossils that we find, they're dead, right? Fossils a dead thing. And if they're really hundreds of millions of years old, that means you've got death before Adam sinned. In fact, you've got death before Adam existed, because we all agree human beings don't go back 100 million years. Even the secular humanists would concede that human beings are recent. So, but wait a minute, doesn't the Bible say that it's by man came death? By Adam's sin, death entered the world? But if you believe in millions of years, even if you don't believe in evolution, but you think the fossils are hundreds of millions of years old, that means you got, by death came man. Those are logically contrary positions. By death came man or by man came death. They cannot both be true. When God saw everything he'd made, behold, it was very good, the Bible says. It wasn't just the Garden of Eden. God saw everything he'd made, and behold, it was very good. Eden was extra special, the Garden of Delight. That's what Eden means, delight. And so you can imagine Adam and Eve enjoying God's perfect creation. But if the fossils were already there, because they're hundreds of millions of years old, and that means animals were already living and dying and killing each other for hundreds of millions of years, and God finally got around to making the Garden of Eden on top of all that, that means you got the Garden of Eden sitting on top of millions of years of death, struggling, disease, bloodshed, and so on. Carnivorous activity. The Bible says that, that originally all the animals were vegetarian, according to Genesis 1. We find thorns in fossil layers that evolutionists believe to be 400 million years old. But when does the Bible say thorns came about? After Adam sinned, and as a result of his sin. Right? We find fossils with evidence of disease in them. Things like arthritis, cancer. There's a field called paleopathology that studies disease in fossils. Now, were those diseases already around when God finished creation? Oh, it's very good. That means disease is very good. Why would you bother praying for your sick friend? It's very good that they're sick. That doesn't ring true. Jesus healed the sick, right? He temporarily reversed the curse. And in the future, he's going to permanently reverse the curse. Now, some people say, oh, but I think it was just human death that was introduced into the world. Animals were already dying and so on. But I, think, I don't think you can defend that biblically. Because if you think about it, when, when Adam and Eve sinned and God confronted them, he then killed an animal or animals to provide skins of clothing for them. God instituted animal death at the time that, that Adam and Eve sinned. And that bothers people. Why, why do animals have to suffer when Adam was the one that sinned? That's the nature of authority. Adam had been given dominion over the animals of the earth. That's the nature of authority. When, when someone's in authority and they do something wicked, everything under their authority suffers. We understand this principle all too well. When our government does something stupid, we all suffer as a result of it, don't we? We know that. That's the way God has designed things. You say, that's not fair. Well, it's not fair that Jesus' blood should count for you on the cross, right? So, so animal death as well as human death would have been introduced when Adam sinned. Now, some people say, oh, but you've got you to have plant death 
before Adam sinned because they were eating plants or plant parts, presumably, right? Uh, but the interesting thing about that is biblically, plants are not considered living. The Bible uses the word nephesh, that's the Hebrew word for life. Nephesh kai, living creatures. And it applies to human beings and animals. We're nephesh kai. It's never applied to plants. Plants are never referred to in scripture as nephesh kai. It's kind of interesting. Now, modern biologists classify plants as living, and they can do that, but that's a, that's a different definition than the Bible uses, so we need to be aware of that. And uh, we, we sort of get that. We know that plants are in a different category. You can talk about plant death, but it's not the same as animal death because plants are not alive in the same way that we are or that animals are. Like, you can talk about a dead battery, but it was never really alive, not in the way we are. And we get that. You come across a so-called dead tree. That's nice. See, I think I'll sit on that for a little while, take a picture of it, put it over the mantle. That's great. If you come across a dead animal, you say, well, that's nice. Let's sit on that for a little while, take a picture. <laughs> that's different, isn't it? We recognize animal death as an intrusion into a world that was once perfect. But uh, yeah, you'll have, I can imagine that in the eternal state. It'll be a plant cycle as there was from the beginning. So, no, the Bible's very clear. God made a world that is very good. And we, in rebelling against him, ruined that world. The world's going to be very good again as a result of Christ's obedience. But we can only enter that without ruining it if our sin's been covered and if our nature's been changed. That's why we need salvation. If you don't understand Genesis, you blame God when somebody dies. And people do, right? Why did you allow my friend to die? We need to understand death is not God's fault. It's our fault. God told us what would happen, right? Adam, if you do this, this is what will happen. And Adam said, yeah, that's what I want. And so when someone dies, it's not God's fault, it's our fault. And we need to remember that it's only by God's grace. He didn't execute me in my sleep last night. Right? Because I don't deserve to live on my own merit. Certainly not. I deserve death. We live in a very entitled society, right? Because people think, well, I'm entitled to you know, free education and free health care and everything else I can get, right? And I like to remind people, no, what, you, what you've earned is death and hell. That's what, you, that's what you deserve. Anything you get that's better than that is by God's grace. The next breath you take, you haven't earned it. It's by God's grace and his mercy, right? How many breaths have you taken today? That's something to think about. What about the extent of the flood? Did you know you can't believe in millions of years and have a global flood? Because either the flood would deposit the bulk of the fossils, a few afterwards perhaps, or over hundreds of millions of years they'd be deposited. And so those folks who believe in deep time, the millions of years, they reject a global flood. And uh, I'm thinking of a particular uh, teacher. He's a Christian. I don't doubt his salvation. But he's, he doesn't believe in a global flood he said, because he believes in millions of years. And he says, so there was a flood of Noah, but it was just a local event limited to the Mesopotamia Valley. Well, what does the Bible say? Not that. Genesis 6.17, God says, And behold, I, even I, do bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy... What, a few things here and there? No, to destroy all flesh. Where is the breath of life from, what, the local Mesopotamia Valley? No, from under heaven. It would be under the sky. That would be all of them, wouldn't it? And everything that is in the earth shall die. Genesis seven nineteen through 20. And the waters prevailed exceedingly upon the earth, and all the high hills that were under the whole heaven were covered. Fifteen cubits upward did the waters prevail, and the mountains were covered. Mountains were covered. Yeah, that's not going to be a local flood. All flesh died that moved upon the earth, every creeping thing, every man, all in whose nostrils was of the breath of life of all that was in the dry land, died. Every living substance was destroyed. Again, the Bible is just hitting it over and over again. 
Noah only remained alive and they that were with him on the ark. Now the Bible's very clear it was a global flood. And that would account for the bulk of the fossils that we find today. You can't have a local flood that covers the mountains. What would that look like? It would look like that. Local floods don't cover mountains, right? That's because water seeks its own level. We get that. Or what was the purpose of the rainbow? God's promise never to send another global flood or local flood. Because if it was a local flood, he's broken his promise thousands of times. But we've never had a second global flood. Why would you build an ark the size of an ocean liner, take two of every air-breathing land animal and birds for a local flood that you knew was coming? Why not just move? I mean, that'd be easier, wouldn't it? But, but an ark's the only way to survive a global flood. And taking two of every air-breathing land animal, that's the only way to do it. Okay, I'm going to skip a few of these slides, otherwise we'll be here for millions of years. Okay. <laughs> I want to sum it up with this cross series. The church is preaching a message. Come to Jesus, come to the cross and be saved. That's the gospel. We want to be preaching that. But then there's been an attack in the form of millions of years. And this really began in earnest in the 1700s. And it impact, it impacts. And the church, by and large, thinks, well, that's a miss. It didn't hit the cross. That's not a salvation issue. The church, by and large, did not do its due diligence to defend the faith in the area of origins in the 1700s. And then that led to other problems. We need to recognize that millions of years is an attack on Genesis. If millions of years is true, Genesis isn't. And the gospel is based on Genesis. Satan's crafty. If he were aiming at the cross, we'd be concerned. We'd, oh yeah, if, if, you, if somebody says there was no resurrection, we'd say, no, no, let me, let me show you the evidence for the resurrection. But Satan's crafty. He aims at our foundation, and we think it's a side issue. It's really a foundational issue, isn't it? Is God's word true from the beginning? And because we didn't defend the age of the earth, all these other attacks came. Naturalism, evolution, eight men, millions of years, no global flood, and they impacted. And we think it's a miss. It was really a direct hit, and the result of all these different attacks on Genesis is unbelief. Just as Jesus said, if I've told you earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And then these different symptoms happen, uh, you know, newsflash prayers outlawed in schools. And that bothers us. Well, trust in Jesus, which we should do, but we're not, we're not defending the faith, really. Creation's outlawed in schools. And we say, well, Jesus is going to return. Yes, he is, but he's told us to do some things in the meantime, like make disciples of all nations, be ready always to give an answer, and so on. The Bible's outlawed in schools. We don't like that. Well, let's get the Bible back into schools. That'd be nice. Well, don't get me wrong, I'm all for doing what can be done on a political level, but if the culture will be one to Christ, it won't be through politics. That's my point. It'll be through the proclamation and defense of the gospel. Ten Commandments is outlawed in schools, and then, well, you know, let's concentrate on worship. And the church can be doing a lot of good things, but if we're not defending the faith from the beginning, then the result is the gospel has become obscured by unbelief. And this is the way I see the culture today. They don't believe in Genesis, and so they don't believe the gospel that stems from it. It's been obscured by unbelief. That's why I founded the Biblical Science Institute, Repair Church Ministry. We want to come alongside the church, repair the damage that's been done, show you you can trust in Genesis. I kind of specialize in the science because that's my, that's my field, but, uh, but we can all defend the faith. And then when these different attacks come, we want to warn you these are attacks on the Christian faith. And then we show you how to refute all those different issues with the various resources that we have. You like that Death Star animation? I worked really hard on that. Yeah. Yeah. 
Ultimately, we'd like to be in the background. We'd like everyone in the church to recognize these are attacks on the Christian faith and then to, uh, to refute those arguments. And that's, that's why we have the resources that we have at the Biblical Science Institute. And then the church can say, come to Jesus, come to the cross and be saved. And people say, I get it now. It's because of what Adam did that I need a Savior. That's what it comes down to. So check us out on the web, biblicalscienceinstitute.com. And uh, some, some specific resources you might want to get. The Importance of Genesis. I, just, I have a brand new book on this topic. And in fact, I brought some today if you'd, like to, uh, if you'd like to buy some of those. And all proceeds will go to feed a starving astrophysicist. So there you go. So check that out. It covers, it covers what I covered today and some things I didn't have a chance to cover today as well. And then a good follow-up would be Understanding Genesis, which I did not bring today, but you can get that on our website, biblicalscienceinstitute.com. So as the worship team comes up, let's go ahead and close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this time. We thank you that your word is true from the beginning. We thank you for, for everything you've done for us, Lord, for creating us and for saving us. We thank you for giving us a true word. We thank you that your word is true from the beginning, that we can trust it. Help us to have confidence in that and to be able to share our faith with conviction with those in the world that, that they might be saved as well. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.